If you would open your Bibles to Esther chapter 4, verse 14. Now, I was praying this morning, and usually I get kind of skittish about saying that God spoke to me, but I really felt something laid on my heart. And God said, before you start this, you need to let people know that how this service affects them is not on you, the preacher, but it is on them. See, preaching is not one sermon, but two. There's a sermon that God's Spirit is preaching through me, and God's Spirit is preaching in your heart. And once you respond to what's stirring within, and it connects with what's coming out of my mouth, you are now in God's will. I am just tasked with bringing the ingredients of your change, but God asks you to bring the desire that will activate it. How this service impacts you is in your hands. How this altar changes your life is not on how well I preach, thank God, but it's on how much you want God's word to saturate your mind and your heart and your life. In Jesus' name, Jesus' name. Esther chapter 4, verse 14. I need to give some context real quick. Mordecai and Esther are God's people living in a foreign land under a foreign king, but Esther in miraculous fashion has just married this king. But the second in command to this king, his name is Haman. And he is on a vendetta because Mordecai, Esther's cousin, would not bow to Haman. And so Haman has went on this genocidal rampage trying to kill Mordecai and every one of his brethren. And so Mordecai looks at Esther and he says, here are your options. In the midst of your storm, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your uncertainty, you have a decision to make, Esther. And here's what he says, chapter, verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Notice real quickly the question mark in that last statement. We misremember how this statement took place because we've heard it preached, called for such a time as this. This is your moment. You were chosen for such a time as this. But it's not a statement of absolute certainty. No, it is a statement of fragile faith, hoping that God is in this, hoping that God will use this, hoping that God is in the midst of the storm, working it for their good. You may be seated. We all know how the story of Esther ends. Esther, through a series of, of wonderful events, ends up saving the people, God's people, from Haman's wrath. But I want to shock you a little bit today and let you know that Esther was not really the hero of her story. No. Not even Mordecai. He was blessed at the end of this, but he wasn't the hero of their story at all either. Who truly was the hero of their story was their enemy, Haman. Because do you realize that Esther was not the first queen to sit on that throne. The last queen got fired in a roundabout way. 
She would have just been another name on the page that you would have read past and never would have affected your life. But when Haman, when an adversary, when a giant and when a storm entered into Esther's life, something was demanded to rise out of her. Something that was dormant was challenged. And in response, God broke some greatness out of Esther that had to be shown because there was no other option but to respond to her trial. Mordecai was not the hero of his story. Haman was his enemy because you know Haman or Mordecai was just the keeper of the king's gate. He was just a normal guy doing his job every day. But when Haman decided he was going to try to kill Mordecai, God gave Mordecai Haman's power, Haman's ring, Haman's home, and Haman's money. Why? Because when his enemy rose up against Mordecai, God used the storm, used the questions, used the doubts, and used the fears to pull something out of Mordecai. Did it hurt? Yes, it did. Was it scary? Yes, it was. But God was more concerned about Mordecai's greatness than he was about his comfort. That is my title today. Thank God for my famine. Because without the droughts and the fears and the giants, greatness that was in you would not have broken forth. It taught you how to pray. It taught you how to worship. When you went out there and you found no fulfillment, God showed you that your family could only be raised in his house. That only God could complete you. That only God could hold you. Thank God he allowed the broken bones to teach you that only I can mend you. Jesus' name. See, who would have David been without his Goliath? The boy was anointed king in isolation, but truly only when God allowed Goliath to enter David's life was that anointing activated. Only then was a boy transformed before the eyes of a fearful nation into a king. Only then was his bravery manifested. His joy and his faith got the chance to shine. But see, we want David-like potential, and we want David-like promises, and we want David-like possibilities, but we don't want Goliath-like adversaries, Goliath-like tribulation, and Goliath-like trials. But only Goliath-like situations can break you out of complacency and break through your praise, break through your potential, and break through your calling. It took a giant to awaken a hero, and God will allow a giant to awaken something inside of you. Because God is more concerned about your growth than he is about our comfort. God always has, and God always will be. See, we label God, God of joy, God of peace, and God of certainty. We give God credit for the comfort, but yet we give the enemy credit for the storm. But when you do this, you are limiting how God can interact in your life because God has always used walls. He's always used giants, and he's always used famines to show his people a side of him they've never seen and to break out a devotion they were unwilling to give. God has always used tough love to be your God. And if we only limit him to the God of fuzzy feelings and unbroken faith, the God that holds everything together and the God that never lets you feel pain, you will limit how God can change you, God can grow you, and God can mend you. You know if God never let you grow thirsty, you wouldn't have known that only he can quench it. You know if God wouldn't have let you be broken, you would not have put your family every day in the car, every day bit your knee in your prayer closet. It took a giant to Awaken your perspective of how much I need God and what God has put within me. 
Thank God for my, thank God for my family. Thank God for the famine that changed you, grew you, and awakened you. Jesus name. Jesus. Jesus name. Jonah. Jonah was told by God, go towards Nineveh, win them, preach repentance, save the city. And Jonah said, I do not want to. I don't know how these wicked people will repent. I don't want to get involved. And so Jonah gets on a boat and goes the opposite direction. But the Bible says that God hurled the wind upon the seas just to shake up Jonah's life, just to get him a little confused, just to rattle him a little bit. You see, the Bible says that God is not the author of confusion, but God sure will use your confusion. Look at Job. That was a very confusing experience. God shook up Jonah's life. He made him so afraid and the men with him that it got him out of the boat and into the water. Then the Bible says that God appointed, he called, he guided the whale, the great fish, to swallow Jonah. Do you realize That Jonah had no idea it was God. See, we forget that. Jonah had no idea this confusion, this trial, and this struggle had any of God's fingerprints upon it. He had no idea that God was in it. But with every tear of disappointment, with every broken relationship, with every cry in the night, he had no idea that his trial was swimming him back towards his promise, that his trial was swimming him back towards his destiny. He had no idea that with every broken bone, God was swimming him back towards God's will for Jonah's life. That fish was the worst thing Jonah thought ever could happen to him. It was smelly. It was hot. But it coughed Jonah back on the banks of Nineveh. Then he knew God was guiding me. God was leading me. And God was developing me. Thank God for the famine. Thank God for the famine. I always love that when God addresses the, um, you got me out here. We're going to test it out. Talk about testing. Jenny Craig. I always love when Jesus, you hating on my jacket size? I, I, yeah. Actually, it's an average size male jacket. Don't, don't be hating. 511, 160. I looked it up. I needed it for my confidence. I had to search it for myself. It's average. It's okay. Y'all got y'all messing me up. I always love when Jesus addressed the church of Smyrna. Smyrna was unique. Smyrna had the most affirmation from their creator because of this. The more they were persecuted, the more it seemed to release praise that was within them. The more broken they were, the harder life seemed to squeeze them. The more praise and devotion went up to God. Why is this significant? Because Smyrna, the church and the town that they resided in, was named after a word called myrrh. Myrrh was the name of a spice, a fragrance that they produced within the city. It was a raisin, a sap, that had a sweet fragrance within, but it only was released when you first crushed it. Something was hidden deep down that only could be broken forth when pressure began to shake it, crush it, and dissipate it. So is your life. See, you don't know what you got until a Goliath says, show me. You don't know what you possess until a mountain says, climb me. You don't know what you have within you until a storm says, survive me. But God wants to find out how much you can pray, how devoted you can become, how much you will sacrifice 
sacrifice and how hungry you are for his will in your life. Thank God for the famine that taught me how to bend my knee when only God could complete me. Thank God for the thirst that showed me that only the rivers of living water could quench my thirst. See, when you have no other option but God, it's amazing how devoted you'll become. It's amazing how much you'll worship, how much you'll reach, how much you'll pray when God has dried up all that you are in pursuit of all that he is. Can somebody magnify your God in this place? He is worthy of all the glory, worthy of all the praise, God. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Maybe seated. Elijah's the young prophet. This is the first time you see Elijah in your Bibles. Now, Elijah's got swag, y'all. This is Elijah's first at bat. He is ready. You know he's dreaming about it. He's been praying about it for his promise, for his purpose. And he gets his chance to talk to Ahab, the wicked king of God's people. He squares up, looks at Ahab, and lets him know that God is not going to allow a drop of rain to fall on your lives until you get your heart right. That's a demanding, that's a very impactful statement. Elijah drops the mic, turns around, walks off. And you know how human nature prevails. You know he's focused immediately on the next hero moment. He's focused on the next time God answers his prayers. He's focused on the next blessing, the next completed event. He's focused on the next time God gives him what he's been praying about, what he's been hungering for. In faith, he already sees the mountaintop experience. He already sees how God can use him to call down fire from heaven. He's already dreaming about challenging the prophets of Baal and being God's man. He's already obsessed about where he's going to go. But God takes Elijah, puts him by the brook of Cherith. Crystal clear water flows through it. Every day he's fed by ravens. This is the place of comfort, security, and confidence. And he is there chilling out and focused on the next time he gets to see the king and have his moment. Then something strange happens to Elijah. God allows the famine and the drought to hit his life as well. God, I thought that only discontentment would hit those that are not in your church. I thought only those out there would deal with fear and, 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 and complacency and everything, that everything I thought you would deliver me from. I never thought that the famine would hit my life, my relationship, my confidence, and my security. I never thought it would hit me, and so we've thought. But Elijah didn't notice something very important, that God had a widow woman that Elijah needed to minister to. Elijah didn't know either that there were a hundred prophets of Baal or a hundred prophets of God, men of God, hiding in a cave, waiting for their moment to be great. He also didn't realize that it's going to be three long years before God answers his prayer and puts him up on that mountain. He has no idea the journey and the time. One last thing he doesn't know about. After he has his moment and God answers that prayer, he's going to deal with such severe depression that he will be near suicidal. He has no idea who he will become and what he will face. So God allows the famine to hit his life and dry up everything he had to pull him out of where he was and forth in his life. I'm not done with this point. I was just setting you up. I asked God, these hundred prophets of God, these great men, why were they not on the mountain with Elijah three years later calling down fire from heaven? Where were they? Why was Elijah the only one? And God revealed it to me. He said, I allowed a man named Obadiah to feed them every day. 
I never allowed them to grow hungry. I never allowed them to grow thirsty, but I dried up all that Elijah had to get him on that mountaintop. I never allowed them to feel fear. I never allowed them to be broken, but I allowed Elijah to be shaken, to fall on his knees. Say, God, show me. I never allowed them to be shaken out of their cave, but I allowed Elijah to be shaken so that he would be on that mountaintop and be near that widow woman. Greatness was hidden within these men because God never allowed comfort to dissipate, never allowed a desperation to come out of them, never allowed brokenness to be released, never allowed it. But God was more concerned about Elijah's greatness than he was about his comfort. Elijah approaches the widow woman. This, this verse threw me for a loop. I always thought that Elijah just went because God said, you need to minister to her. Go. But God didn't just say that. God told Elijah that I need you to go to this widow woman because she's the only one that can feed you. She's the only one that can fulfill you. Elijah, I will dry up all that you have so that you have to find fulfillment in her life. What would it show me is that when discontentment bursts desperation, God will release revelation. God will change the way you view yourself and those around you in his will. God will dry up the altar where you can't fill him until you learn how to pray in your own home and find him there. God will dry up your confidence until you take your eyes off of you and focus it on somebody else. God will make your ministry dry up until you are saturated with devotion for your brother's walk, your sister's ministry. God does it to reveal a vision, a sight, and a will you've never seen before. Because when discontentment bursts desperation, what comes forth is revelation. Elijah never saw her. All he saw was a mountain. But God said, I will try up all that you are so that you can pull your life into all that she will be. So winning happens when you're so discontent that God is allowed to put you wherever he needs to put you, place you wherever he needs to place you, pour into you whatever he needs to pour into you to come out in your workplace, come out in your school. So winning is a contentment issue. If I am comfortable in who I am and God never shakes me, why would I ever look out of my Brook of Cherith experience and look at a widow woman that's broken, hungry, and starving? It's amazing how we identify with the problems of others when God allows problems of our own to come forth. That's ministry. The clicking of what you felt and the clicking of what they felt. But if God never allows you to be broken, scarred, or confused, you can't minister to anybody. Do you want to be used or do you want to be comfortable? Do you want to be blessed or do you want to be patted on the back? God says, let me mold you. Let me break you. Let me put you in the furnace of life and develop you. Worship your God right now. Take 30 seconds, magnify him, because he's about to move in your life. We're ahead of schedule. You can clap a little bit. You can jump a little bit. You can get a little uncomfortable just a little bit. We have enough time to stir up the gift that's within you. Elijah approaches the widow woman and he asks her, give me all that you have left. 
She says, you don't understand my situation because all that I have left is enough to feed me and my son and then we're going to die. We're going to die. But he says, give me all that you have left and God will give you abundance. That doesn't make sense. If I give you all that I have left, all the time, all the energy, I just need it just to breathe every day. But you want me to give you all that I am left and you're gonna promise me that some miracle from the sky will bless me? Notice how the economy of heaven doesn't make sense sometimes unless you're in the middle of a famine. It doesn't add up unless God has put you in a place of no option. She has no option but to obey. Because of this, she gives Elijah all that she has left. You know how we are. We wouldn't have had the faith to do that unless God removed every option, burned every bridge, and cut off every lifeline but his. She had no option. She wasn't greater than you. She just had no option. So the faith had to rise out of her that was hidden within. She wasn't stronger than you, prayed more than you. She just had no option, but we're clinging to the tether, hoping there's another way out but God's way. But because of this, two things happen. God allowed what she had to never dry up, her oil and her flour. It said that she was well fed while the rest of the world was in drought and discontentment. Second thing that happened, it allowed Elijah to live within her home. The man of God is now living within her home, and he would have not been there otherwise. The famine broke Elijah out of Cherith, made him move. The famine demanded her great faith, and she did it, and that allowed the man of God to be in her home. Why is that important? Because her son drops dead randomly. But the Bible says that they're well fed, they're well nourished, that the famine isn't touching them anymore. So if the famine didn't kill him, is it safe to say that he'd have died whether there was a famine or not? If he was well fed in the midst of the famine, he didn't die because of the famine. And I asked God, what does this mean? And God showed me that if I had not allowed the famine to hit Elijah's life, he would not have moved. Elijah's in her house. And God tells Elijah, just lay over the boy. Lay over him and he'll come back to life. Elijah lays over him and the boy rises back up. God, why did he die so randomly after you blessed him? And God showed me that if the famine had not hit Elijah, Elijah would have stayed in his comfort. If the famine would not have hit her, she would have had the faith to survive it. And if the famine had not have made her do it, he wouldn't have been in her house. God put the one man that could resurrect her son in the house in the right time. Why? Because God knew I can resurrect in her discomfort what would have died in her comfort. I can resurrect in her storm what would have died in her confidence. I can resurrect... What would have died in her security with her trial? God can resurrect a prayer life, a morality, a character that can survive the relationship that you're praying for. Only through the trial, only through the discontentment, only through the famine. It was a set up for God's power. Something miraculous happens to your mind when you see the storm clouds and they no longer scare you, but now you see it as a setup for God to release potential that's within you. Something snaps in your spirit when you see the Goliath and you say, buckle up, because God's about to change me, about to grow me, about to teach me, and about to release me. Something changes in your walk with God when the trial doesn't scare you, but it says, now is my time to step out of my boat and on the water. Thank God for my... Thank God for my famine. Thank God for the brokenness. Thank God for the discontentment. Because God was too concerned 
with my greatness in my prayer life than he was about my comfort. And you can step out if you want to. This is up to you. How this service ends is up to you. I'll keep going will hurt my feelings. I got enough to last. But if you want to go ahead and get set up to break out and find God's will for your life, you go ahead and do it. Look, look, look. Jonah, Jonah. At the end of Jonah's story, God allowed him to look over Nineveh. He allowed him to. And Jonah's hoping that they'll all burn. I hope they don't hear what I preached. I hope they'll just fry. And God allows a tree, he allows a tree to grow over Jonah for the express purpose, I quote, of giving him comfort. Then God calls the whale, he calls the worm, God calls this worm to eat the tree. God calls the worm to eat the tree, and Jonah's so mad at God for doing this, he's shaking his fist at heaven, and God says, Jonah, can you not see how you care about this meager tree and show you how much I care about Nineveh? Can you not see, while you're so angry over a tree, I am consuming my people. What it showed me is that when discontentment bursts desperation, God will produce revelation. God will be the source of your comfort, but yet the source of your discontentment to show you a compassion, to show you a way out, to show you a door you've never seen before. God will do it to manifest character within you. Okay, we're gonna cut some stuff out. I think we're ready. You ready? I'll be done, you ready? This may be your first time in this service. You have no idea what's going on. Okay. You have no idea what's going on. This may be your second time, third time. You may be a saint of God that's lived here the whole time. You have no idea what's happening. You wonder why little things are shaking you. Little daily affairs are crippling you. You wonder why little things rob you of your joy and your prayer life and your intimacy with God. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Moses tells the people that God allowed them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years to do one thing, to humble them. He also said that God allowed you to wander in the wilderness for 40 years to humble you and to make you hungry. Because when he made you hungry, he dropped manna from the sky to feed you. But yet you and your fathers did not understand what manna was, but you had no other option but to eat it. And when you did this, the Bible says it taught them that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word of God that proceeds out of his mouth. They were willing, because they were so hungry, to eat of something they did not understand. God will allow you to get so thirsty that you're willing to go places you don't understand, step into situations you can't comprehend. God will make you so hungry to show you that you don't understand how to win Nineveh before you go to Nineveh. You don't have to understand how to teach a Bible study before you share it in your schools. You don't have to understand how to pray until after you bend your knee. You're about to go into a situation that you don't understand. And God sent me to tell you this. Understanding is not a precondition to walking in God's will. It's always an after effect. It's always a consequence of stepping out in faith. Here's the altar call. Y'all ready? When you look at Esther's life, 
you see no sign of God. It's the only book in the Bible that does this. No mention of God at all. No prophet, no, no angel saying God is with you. God's going to use you. No sign. Chapter by chapter, there's no fingerprints of God on Esther and Mordecai's life. But when you shut the story of Esther, you obviously can see that God was there, that God was using it, that God was moving it. So is your life. You will not see that God was in it until after the storm, until after you respond, until after you say obey, until after you break. You will have no idea that God was in it until after your story is shut. What I'm trying to tell you is you cannot make up in your mind whether this altar is for you until after you come down. I just hedged my bet. You cannot make up in your mind until after you come down and say, God, show me. God, reveal. God, resurrect within me. You cannot have the verdict be settled in your pew until you come down and say, God, how you moving? God, how you using? How you growing me? And then when it happens and you stand up and the altar calls over, then you will see that God put his fingerprints on your whole yes, life. Yes, yes, yes. On your whole yes, life. Yes. Her boy died. But see, when discontentment bursts desperation, what breaks out is resurrection. You cannot have the resurrection of your dream, your morality, your character, your faith, unless God is able to break some things within you, able to shake some things within you, able to break something out that was dormant within you that would have died otherwise. This is the altar call. This is not a timid prayer. This is not a passive. These are those that want to find God's revelation and his resurrection. These are those that want to walk into the fire and find out that God was there with them. These are those that want to step out of the boat and say the storm is a setup to walk hand to hand with my Jesus. Will you come? Will you come and find God? Will you come and ask God, break it out of me, show me, change me, reveal to me, resurrect me. Intercessory prayer will flow out of you for those around you. Broken prayer will flow th from you. Let the brokenness fuel your faith. Let the hunger fuel your, de your devotion and your passion. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, Jesus' name. Look. You may be in the storm right now, and you don't even know that you can step out of your boats. You don't even know that God is there with you. I just need you to trust the word of God. When your eyes cannot see it, your faith can perceive it. When your ears cannot hear it, your faith can hear it. You will have no sign, but God's in it. You have no validation, but God's in it. You have no guarantee, but God is within it. Right now, he's moving. Right now, he's shaping. Right now he's resurrecting. I've seen you move. I've seen you move. I've seen you move. I've seen you move. Moving my life. Moving my situation. I believe God. Change me. Move me. Resurrect me.